This week, Parshat Shmini, I would like to discuss, of course, the death of Nadav and Avihu, of course, the kind of central story, the central event of Parshat Shmini. Perkyud, Pasuk Aleph, in Tzirah Vayikra, tells us as follows. After the Karbanot had been brought upon the Yom HaShmini on the eighth day, um, after Moshe and Aaron had emerged in the Olam and blessed the people, after God's fire had consumed the Karbanot and the Mizbeach, the Torah tells us, um, And the sons of Aaron, Nadav Aviyu, took each man his fire pan, and they put upon it fire, and they placed upon it incense, and they brought close before God a foreign fire, that they were not commanded. Of course, as we all remember, Perakyut Pasik Bet tells us, and a fire went out from in front of God, and consumed them, and they died in front of God before the Lord. Now, of course, the famous and rather standard question is, why do Nadav Abihu die? What have they done wrong? Uh, what exactly necessitates their death? How do we explain their death, etc., etc.? This, of course, is the standard and well-known question, the explanation of the death of Nadav Abihu. Now, while I would like to address this question in the shiur today, on some level, I would like to address it in an indirect fashion through concentration on a slightly different question. I would like to talk, to some extent, about the context of the story of Nadav and Abihu, uh, the larger frame, uh, the larger story found here in Perak Tet and Perak Yud here in Sefer Vayikra. Uh, now, as I already alluded, um, the death of Nadav Abihu, uh, or their bringing of the Ketoret, the Esh Zara Ashalot Utam, that which they were not commanded, happens here after something else, or it happens Bayom Hashmini, on the eighth day. And what I would like to do uh, very briefly, is to go back to the beginning of uh, the parak, or the, pardon me, the beginning of this larger segment, uh, the beginning of Perak Tet, uh, here in Sefer Vayikra, and to take a look at some of the Pesukim there. And let us go back for the moment to Perak Tet, Pasuk Aleph, which says as follows. And it was upon the eighth day, Kara Moshe Israel. Moshe called to Aaron and his sons, and to Zikna Yisrael, the elders of Israel. And the Torah continues on, And he said to Aaron, Take a young calf, Ben uh, Bakar, as a chatat, etc. And then there are other karbanot, So the Bnei Yisrael, or Aaron, is supposed to take for the children of Israel other karbanot, other sacrifices, a seir, izim, a goat uh, as a chatat offering, and then an eagle, another calf, others as an olah, and then something else as a shlamim and a mincha, and then Pasuk Dalit concludes why? Ki hayom Hashem alechem. The purpose of all of these karbanot mentioned in the first four verses of Perak Tet, whether it be the karbanot of Aaron, or afterwards, the carbonates brought, the sacrifices brought for B'nai Yisrael, they are meant for a particular purpose, summed up at the end of Pasuk Dalet. Again, the phrase, Kayom Hashem Nira Aleichem, because this day, God will appear to you. There's some connection between these various carbonates and the appearance of God, uh, the manifestation of the Shekhinah, of the Divine Presence, that is going to happen. So we have our one carbonate and two, the appearance of God. Now, if we telescope forward or jump ahead for the moment to the tail end of Perak Tet, Perak Tet is actually 
primarily about the bringing of all of these karbanot mentioned in the first four psukim of Perektet. First, Aaron brings his chatat and his, his olah, and then uh, the sin offering and holy burnt offering. And then afterwards, he brings the various offerings mentioned on behalf of B'nai Yisrael, whether it be the chatat, the olah, the shlamim, the mincha, etc., without going to the details now. And after all of this happens, after one karbanot, Aaron and Moshe go into the Omoe, they go into the tent of meeting, and then they emerge, and then they bless the people. And then we're told as follows in Perk Tet, Pasuk Kaf Gimel, towards the tail end of the Perk. And Moshe and Aaron came to the tent of meeting, and then they came out, and they blessed the people. Now at that point in time, after the Karbanot, and suddenly then, apparently, most probably, in a cloud above the Tent of Meeting, the glory of God appeared, Vayera, it's the exact same word as Paraktet Pasadal, Kiyayom Hashem, Alechem, God will appear to you. God does appear. And what happens? The glory of God appears in the form of a cloud, most probably. The phrase, the Rai uses the phrase Vayera, and then Hashem, and besides the glory and cloud, we now have fire, all standard markers of the presence of the divine presence of the Shekhinah. The fire went out, and it consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fats. Vayar, they saw Kolaam, the people all saw, and of course they bowed down. So, exactly as predicted at the beginning of the parak, we have one Karbanot and two, the seeing of the presence of God. That's exactly what happens at the end of the parak. You have after Karbanot, then the double Vayar, and the fire appears, God is manifested. This is all an idea of Shechina in the Mikdash. In other words, what the Karbanot of Yom Hashmini are about, the Sacrifices of the eighth day are about the bringing of the divine presence into the Mishkan. Um, now, exactly at this point, immediately after Vayar Kolam in Paraktet Pasik Kaftalid, we pass the Simon between Paraktet and Parak Yod, and we come back to our story, the death of Nadav Avihu. Parak Yod Pasik Aleph says, Aron Nadav each man took his fire pan, they put it in it fire, they placed it in intense, they brought their offering, exactly like, similar to the fire that had come out previously, they were consumed, same phrase, there's an obvious connection between, or some sort of connection, between the story of Yom Hashmini, the bringing of the Karbanot, and the appearance of the Divine Presence in the Mishkan, that happens in Paraktet, and the very beginning of they come one after another. It's right somehow in response to this, as an attempt perhaps to continue this process, um, something in some sort of connection between the action and the death of Nadav Aviyu on the one hand, and what had happened previously, the bringing of the Divine Presence into Mishkan between the Karbanot. Now I'd like to try to explore, to paraphrase, Lashon uh, Chazal would be, Ma Inyan Nitat Nadav Avihu, or Ma'inyan Ma'aseh Nadav Avihu, Eitzayom Hashmini. What is the adjacentness, or the juxtaposition, or the connection between the story of Yom Hashmini of the eighth day on the one hand, and the death of Nadav Avihu, the actions of Nadav Avihu on the other hand? And this is the primary question I'd like to try to explore. But I would like to explore it in a particular fashion, through a particular lens. Since I've already begun to follow Chazal, I would like to kind of structure this question following uh, an interpretation of Rashi and Ramban, which is also based to a great extent on Divrei Chazal. And to formulate the question this way, I would like again to go back to the beginning of uh, the Parak, the beginning of Parak Tat, and talk about a kind of dual problem that arises there. Let us go back again to Parak Tat, um, Pasuk Aleph, 
uh, for the moment. And let's read it again. It says as follows. So on the eighth day, and Moshe summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Take these various things as Karbanot and other various Karbanots for B'nai Israel. And what's rather interesting is that this, of course, is the, uh, as I just pointed out a moment ago, and I've said it a few times already, this, of course, is the eighth day. And it follows after, without going into detail too much, it follows after Perakhet here, which talk about what are called the Shivat Yemei Hamiluim. Um, just to read one Pasuk, Perakhet Pasuk Lamed Yimel, uh, says as follows. Um, Moshe commands Aaron, we petach oel moed lo tetsu shivat yamim ad yom melot yemei miluechem. And um, Aaron and his sons are commanded by Moshe that from the tent door of the tent of being they cannot leave for seven days. Ad yom melot yemei miluechem until the days are filled. Kishivat yamim yemaleyachem because for seven days you must uh, be trained or practiced or prepared, etc. And this, of course, is the command of the Shivat Yamayamayim, which had been elaborated on in Parakhet, and just kind of reading the summary verse of the ending verse here, which then begins, uh, and then in Parakhet we come to the eighth day. Now, what is the problem here? Why is this a problem? Well, what's intrigued uh, many of the commentaries is if we go back to the original command of the Yamayamayim, which is found in Shmot Parakhet, um, and Shmot Parakavtet begins in Parakavtet Pasagal Otam This is what you should do to sanctify them to serve me. Uh, and then you have the lengthy instructions for the Mehamiluim for the seven days of preparation or training that extend throughout Parakavtet. And at the end of Parakavtet, the number seven is mentioned a few times. For example, Parakavtet Pasuk Lamedzayin reads Shivat Yamim. And Shabbat Yamim over and over at the end of the parak. And strikingly, what's never mentioned in Sefer Shmot whatsoever is any command by God to Moshe of an eighth day. There is no mention, no hint even, of a Yom Hashmini of an eighth day in Sefer Shmot whatsoever. And yet, when we come now to Vayikra Perak Tet Pasuk Aleph, Vayi Bayom Hashmini Karam Moshe Laron Levanav Zignei Yisrael Bayom Laron, Moshe summons them, gives them their marching order, Moshe knows all about. Uh, Yom Hashmini. And this is a kind of strange textual problem. When was he commanded? Was he commanded? How did he know? When did all this happen? Um, where does the command come from? Um, why suddenly is it present here in Sefer Vayikra when it wasn't present in Sefer Shemot? This problem intrigued the Rishonim quite greatly. Now what also intrigued the Midrash and Rashi and Ramban is an interesting animal that is prominent in um, uh, the command of the Karbanot of the Yom Hashmini. And I'll read you again Paraktat Pasuk Bet. Vayomer el Aaron kach lecha Egel ben Bakar lechatat va'el olal letzmiim v'akir l'fnei Hashem, or a bit later on, the Elbenei Yisrael, etc. The Egel v'keves ben shanat mimim lola. The Egel, the young calf, the baby shor or par, is relatively prominent here in the Karbanot of the Yom Hashmini, and this is another interesting thing that intrigued the Midrash and the Mefarshim. And now I very briefly read you Ramban's comment to explain this entire problem. Ramban says here in Vayikra. Parakhet Pasuk Bet. 
These korbanot of Yom Hashmini were not mentioned in the parsha of the command of the Milim back in Shemot Perak Kaftet. And he goes on to say, Kisham Rak There it was only commanded on the Miluim. And the seven days and the various korbanot. And Ramban goes on to say, And it is possible. And this is already found in Rashi. It is possible, or maybe even probable, and certainly in the Midrashim that Ramban continues to cite, it is stated as a fact, that the eighth day is a special halakha, a special command to, that comes to be mechaper, to achieve atonement for the Masa Egel, and that's why these karbanot are commanded. And that's why the Egel is prominent in these karbanot, because of course, the Egel comes to be mechaper, or to achieve atonement for the Masa Egel. Ki kasher tzivaz Egel And Raman then says, and this explains why previously in the command of the Nilun there's no mention of the Yom Hashmini. Because in the previous command in Shemot Parak Kaftet, the eagle had not yet happened. Since the eagle had not yet happened, there was no need to command the Yom HaShemini, which is a special kapara for the Chaita Egel. And it's only now, here in Sefer Vayikra, after the commission of the Chaita Egel, after there's a need for a special kapara uh, for the Chaita Egel, for a special bringing of the Shekhinah into the Mishkan as a sign or as an atonement for the Chaita Egel, that is why these korbanot of Egel are only mentioned here in Sefer Vayikra. Oh, okay. Now, so if we follow... Um, the approach here, the understanding of Yom Hashmini, uh, as I mentioned, hinted in Rashi, stated in Rashi, although I didn't cite it, and discussed here in Ramban, and which is well-rooted in the Midrashim, the Ramban um, uh, continues on to cite, I think our question becomes, not so much, Ma'inyan chet nadav etzel Yom Hashmini, what is the connection between the sin of nadav on the one hand, and the eighth day, but rather, perhaps, what is this connection between the sin of Nadav Aviyu on the one hand and Kapara for Chet Egel on the other hand? Because what Yom Hashmini is all really about, it's the special arrival or bringing of the Divine Presence into the Mishkan as a sign or as a culmination of the Kapara of the Chet Egel. And here exactly on this day, in this context, this is where the sin of Nadav Aviyu happens. And the question is, how does one inform the other. What's the connection? How does Masen Nadavayu inform our understanding of Egel? And how does Egel, or Kapra for Egel on some level, inform perhaps our understanding of Masen Nadavayu? And this is what I would like to explore uh, in the Shi'or. Now, in truth, um, this question, this problem, or this way of thinking about Perak Yud um, is not really mine, uh, but I, I got it from Rashi. And to begin, I'd like to share with you uh, well, I'd like to share with you two approaches. The first approach to this problem of the relationship between Egel and the Sinem Nadavayu based upon a Rashi, uh, itself based upon a, a Psikta. And afterwards, perhaps an alternative approach based on an uh, overarching approach to the structure of the Perak and some comments of Sforno. Um, let us begin, if so, with uh, the Rashi I mentioned um, a moment ago, a rather, a rather striking Rashi found in Baker Perak Yud, um, Pasuk Yud Bet. Um, but to understand the Rashi, we first have to take a look at the Pasuk. Now, after um, the story of Yom HaShmini, found primarily in Perak Tet of Sefer Vayikra, and after the Chet of Nadav Aviyu mentioned at the beginning of Perak Yud, and the aftermath of the Chet, uh, the prohibition about mourning, and some apparently appropriate laws which must be commended to Konim at that point, we come to Vayikra Perak Yud, Pasuk Yud Bet, which says as follows. 
וידבר משה אל אהרון ואל עזרה ואל איתמר בניו הנותרים. And Moshe spoke to Aaron and Elazar and Itamar, Benav Hanotarim, his remaining sons. Hanotarim literally means remaining. So it seems that Aaron has these kind of leftover sons, these other sons. And this, of course, telescopes us back, sends us back to the chait of Nadav Avihu. There were two sons who died, and then the Benav Hanotarim, the two sons who didn't die. And Moshe continues on here in Parakut, Pasuk Yudbet, Kechu et amincha anotaret mishe Hashem. Take the mincha that is left over, ve'ichlu matzot, and eat it as matzot, ki kodesh kadashim. Um, and then a bit later on in Parakibet Pasigadal, Bet Chazeat Tnufa, Bet Shokat Shumat. We return to the story of the Kavanot of Yom Hashmini, as if here in part three, it's part one, um, is the story of Yom Hashmini and the Kavanot. Part two is the digression of the Chet and Adav Aviyu. And part three is kind of the return to the story of the Kavanot of Yom Hashmini. They must be dealt with, they must be consumed or disposed with in proper fashion, which begins here in Parakyud Pasakyud Bed and goes on to Parakyud Pasakaf. But here you have this word, Banav Hanotarim, in the command of Moshe to Aaron and the sons, which begins the segment here. Now, this is the kind of word that the Midrash, the Midrash or Rashi could certainly not let pass unnoticed or uncommented upon. And on Perak Yud, Pasuk Yud Bet, Rashi, citing Psikta, Rashi chooses to cite this rather interesting Midrash found in the Psikta, says as follows, Hanotarim min hamita, that were left over min hamita from death, that they did not die. Hanotarim means... That um Elazavi Tamar the ones who didn't die, Malamed, Sha'af Alehem Niknesa Mita Al Avona Egel. This teaches us that also upon them, Elazavi Tamar also deserved to die for the Khaita Egel. Who Shinaemara, and this is what it says, in fact, in Dvarim Paraktet Pasikaf, Uba Aron hit Anaf Hashem Odashmido. God became very angry at Aaron to destroy him. And Rashi continues on Vein Hashmada Elakilubanim. And this word Hashmada, destruction, refers to having no sons. And he cites a Pasuk in Amos to prove this. So apparently, because of his role in Cheta Egel, Aaron deserved destruction, i.e. no children. And he was decreed Mita upon all of his children, not just Nadav Aviyu, but also Elazav Itamar. And then what happened? Well, Rashi continues on, still citing the Pesikta, And the prayer of Moshe canceled half of the Gzerah. Four sons were meant to die, in the end only two died, because the Tefillah of Moshe spared two of the sons, made them to be notarim, Elazav Itamar, Shneemar. In those Pesukim, in Tvarim, Moshe says that he prayed for Aaron, etc. So, what does this Rashi say? Well, Rashi tells us, first of all, an astoundingly striking chidush. And I would say as follows, that the story of Nadav Va'aviyu, or the death of Nadav Va'aviyu, is not because of any particular chait done on their part. It's not because they really did something they weren't commanded, or it's not because they went drunk into Kodesh Kadashim, or it's not because they came too close to holiness, or it's not because it was an excess love of Avat Hashem burning in their hearts, and all the other perushim that we're familiar with, the explanation of their chet. They don't die b'chata'am. Rather, they die b'chet avotam. Their death is for and because of chet Egel. All of our Aaron's role in chet Egel in facilitating chet Egel. In fact, all of Aaron's sons would have died if not for the tefillah of Moshe, which caused two of his sons uh, to be spared, which caused Elazar v'Itamar to be spared. Now, what does this tell us about the parak? Well, I think it tells us something rather fascinating. In the end of the day, the kapara, or rather striking theological notion, in the end of the day, the kapara, the atonement for chet Egel, is not just the Karban HaEgel brought in the beginning of Perak Tet as part of the story of Yom HaShmini. The real atonement, 
on some level for Cheta Egel, at least by Aharon, um, is the onesh, is the punishment that he receives in the death of his two sons. We have, of course, a theological notion in Chazal that onesh is mechaper, that a punishment achieves atonement, that a sacrifice makes atonement. And the sacrifice that Aharon makes here on Yom HaShmini, the greatest sacrifice, the loss of his two sons, this is the true and genuine kapara, striking and almost horrifying as it seems for Aaron's role in Cheda Egel, according to the Midrash cited by Rashi. So this would be one way to understand or to resolve our problem of what is the connection between the Kapra for Cheda Egel on the one hand, the theme of the story of Perakted and Yod on the one hand, and the death of Nadavi on the other hand. The answer is, Rashi citing the Midrash, that it is the death of uh, Nadavi that is an essential part of that Kapara, and that's why the story is here, and that's the explanation of Ma'inyan Ze'etzelzeh, and as I pointed out, um, the theological notions here of them being, so to speak, the almost, uh, in parentheses, real korban, or the onish being mechaper, are daring and in some ways difficult, but certainly an interesting reading of the parak. And uh, on some level for myself, the genesis, the origin of the original question of how to relate the question of kapara fuchet egal vis-a-vis nadavavio, and this is one approach. Now, as I said earlier in the shiur, I in fact would like to try to structure a different approach but certainly uh, giving due credit to Rashi and the Farshim, as the whole uh, issue to some extent uh, has been inspired by them. I think there's another way to read Perak Ted and Yud, to integrate the ideas of Cheta Egel and the Masena Davavihu, but this requires us to spend a little bit more time on what I referred to earlier as part three uh, of the gush, of the, of the, the unit, the, the group of Vayikra Perak Tet Perak Yud, uh, kind of the follow-up, the return to the Karbanot, that which begins in Perak Yud, Pasuk Yud Bet, um, where to read it again, by Daber Moshe El Aron Belazar Velitamar Banav Hanotarim, Moshe spoke to Aron and Elazar and Itamar, the remaining sons of Aron, Kuhut Amincha Hanotert Mishay Hashem Vichlumatzot. Moshe here begins instructions as to what to do with all the Karbanot of the Yom Hashmini. And though I went through it very, very briefly, there are in fact, um, uh, a few carbonot that were mentioned earlier at the beginning of Paraktet. There was, of course, the Chatat of Bnei Israel. There was also the Ola and the Shlamim of Bnei Israel, And there was also the Mincha of Bnei Israel. There were actually four carbonot. Now, um, or four types of offerings. Now, in Paraktet itself, in the body of the, of the Parak, it is described how the carbonot are brought and done. But all of these carbonot have a final disposition that must be done with them. For example, in Ola, is burnt completely. A mincha, uh, part of it would normally be eaten by the kohanim. Um, a shlamim uh, has a halakha that there are certain parts of it that have been waved. The shok and the chazeh would be eaten by the kohanim. Um, and the chatat, for example, would also normally be eaten by the kohanim. And what the part three, the third part of our story here, the end of Perakut is about, is about how to dispose of all of these various carbonot. And Moshe talks about the mincha and the chazeh atznufa and the shokat and says they should, this should be done with them, that should be done with them, etc. And then we get to a very crucial pasuk, really towards the, the last few pasukim before the end of the entire unit of Perak Tet, Perak Yud. And here we have to look rather carefully at the pasukim. Let us pick it up in Perak Yud, pasuk Tet Zayin. It says as follows. And the Seirah Chatat, on the simple level, the Seirah Chatat that was brought by Bnei Yisrael in Perak Tet, the Rosh Darash Moshe, 
Moshe searched it out. He asked Aaron, Elazar, and Itamar for the Sirah Chatat. What happened to it? Where is it? Vinei Sarof. And it was burnt. It had been burnt. And Moshe became angry at Elazar Bitamar, the remaining sons of Aaron. Again, here, interestingly enough, the word notarim, the remaining, the leftover, it kind of sends us back um, to the story of the death of Nadavavu. Even the word notarim, a kind of interesting uh, play on the whole notion of Kodashim here. The notar, the leftover, is a technical term in Ochot Kodashim. And of course, also, there's, there's leftovers from a mincha that only must be consumed. So you have these leftover sons. It's kind of interesting. And Moshe says, Why didn't you eat the chatat in the holy place? Ki Kodesh Kodashim, it has a status of holy of holies. And God gave you this role of eating the chatat of B'nai Yisrael, laseit et avon le'chaperlehem, to carry, to bear the iniquity, to achieve atonement for B'nai Yisrael through the act of achila, before God. And then Moshe continues on, um, its blood wasn't brought into the Holy of Holies inside, to the Kodesh Kadashim. You should have eaten it, or you must eat it, in the holy place, as I've commanded. So Moshe is angry, and he's upset with Elazar, Bitamar, the leftover sons, something to do with this Korban Chatat. They were supposed to eat it on behalf of Bnei Yisrael and achieve Kapra, and they didn't do that. And then, um, uh, we had, get the next segment, Aaron responds, Pasukitet. Ve'idaber Aaron el Moshe, Hey nayom hekrivu et chatatam ve'et olatam lefnei Hashem. Behold, this day, Aaron says, yes, this day, I brought their chatat, the chatat of Bnei Yisrael, ve'et olatam, and their whole offering, lefnei Hashem, in front of God. Ve'tikrena oti ka'ila. And this, all then this horrible thing happened to me. This is what happened to me. Uh, after I brought the karbanot, the death of Nadavu happened to me. Ve'achalti chatat hayom, hayitav b'nei Hashem. And this should be read according to Ulam of Hashem as a question. And, if I ate, or if I had eaten the chatat of Bnei Yisrael, would this be good in the eyes of God? Would this um, be the right thing to do? Aaron here responds with a question, with a kasha, with a rhetorical question. Um, when this happened to me, when Nadab Aviyu died and I suffered this tragedy, would it be the correct thing to eat the chatat? And then we get to the resolution at the end, the last pasuk of our entire segment, and Moshe heard this and it was good in his eyes, he accepted the point. What is going on here in this Dialogue, this accusation by Moshe against Aaron Elazar Tamar, in this response by Aaron, this rhetorical question of, oh, should I have done that on the day that Nadav Aviyu died? And then in this resolution, Vaitav Moshe, Vaishma Moshe Moshe heard, Vaitav Beinav, and it was good in his eyes. Well, one way uh, to understand this dialogue and resolution is just as a kind of concern for human suffering and concern for human agony, to understand this solely, so to speak, on on the human plane. Moshe is aggravated. Moshe is upset that things have gone wrong. And he's concerned that something else has gone wrong. And despite the avelut, despite the obvious mourning that Aaron and uh, Elazar v'Itamar are in, uh, despite the agony, he says, listen, there, there is no time here for agony. There is no time for personal suffering. Uh, you must do what you must do. Um, stick to the letter of the law. And Aaron comes back with a counter. I brought the karbanot. Um, to engage in the full, absolute simcha of consuming the korban, that would be too much. Um, you must take into account here the human factor. Um, and there must be some mitigation. We brought the karbanot, we're going to eat this, we're going to eat that. But to eat the chatat as well, which is somehow the ultimate completion of this process, that would be too much. No, 
And Aaron raises here the sense of his and Elazabi Tamar's human suffering here. It would be too much to engage in this kind of simcha of the of the achila. And and Moshe accepts this. Now, while in some level this is right, there's a much deeper aspect, or a, a more formal aspect, but there's simultaneously deeper here, which I think is the key to unlocking, on some level, everything that's going on here in the Parsha. If we go back to Moshe's concern, um, let us go back to Pasuk Yud Zayin again, and exactly what Moshe says. What Moshe says, Madu lo achaltem et achatat bimkoma kodesh ki kodesh kadashim li what Moshe says is, this is not the type of chatat whose blood was brought in the inner sanctum, but rather, since it's not uh, that type of chatat, rather it should be consumed. There is no excuse for it to be burnt and it must be consumed. Moshe's concern is on some level halachic. And Aaron's response as Chazal understood it, and Aro, as Ramban explained, is also, and Rashi, is also a kind of halachic response. Um, what Aaron says is, Maybe in Onen, one who has been struck by death and is in his first day confronting death, one is halachically known as an Onen, maybe he can, the Kohen Gadol can be Makriv Onen, the high priest can bring Karbanot despite being in Aninut. But, even a high priest in Onain is asur, is forbidden in Achilat Kodeshim. And that's exactly what Aaron responds. I brought the Karbanot because I'm the Kohen Gadol. And maybe I could be Makriv Onain that I can uh, bring, uh, even though confronting death. But, uh, no, no, no. Eating is too much. Onain is asur b'achilat Kodeshim. And uh, Chazal and the Midrashim and the Midrashim go on to explain that Moshe did not know this halacha or forgotten this halacha. And Aaron responded and reminded Moshe what was the correct halacha here. Or Aaron defines the correct halacha. Aaron here teaches the law that an Onain, even Kohen Gadol, is not Ochel Kodeshim. As Ramban puts it, this is Masa Umatan uh, there's a back and forth halachic discussion here between Moshe on the one hand and Aaron and Elazar Tamar on the other hand, and it turns out that the Kohanim, the priests, are the ones who have the correct halacha, and Moshe accepts their halachic psak, their halachic teaching. Now, Sforno here in his comment says exactly this. He says, um, Moshe was happy that when he saw that Haron and Elazar and Itamar were attached to the halacha, that they were metiv lahorot, that they were good enough to teach, to decide soberly the right halacha and to teach it, that was what made Moshe happy and that is the resolution and the end of the entire story here. Now, how is this important and how does this help us understand Perikut and Perikut? Um, which is what we would like to do and how does this connect to Chayta Ego? And I'm going to go quickly here because time is actually quite short. Now, to see this and to understand this and put all of it into its proper place, we need to go back to one segment of uh, the story of Paraktet and Parakyud that we have skipped over to some extent. In the aftermath of the death of Nadav Abiyu, after the prohibition of Afelut and the instructions about how to dispose of um, uh, the bodies of Nadav Abiyu, um, we get an interesting segment in the Torah, a kind of interesting code of law which is commanded to Aaron and to the Kohanim. In Parak Yud, Pasuk Chet, we're told as follows here in Tzif Ve'ikra. Yayin v'shechar al-teisht ata uvanecha itach b'vorachem al-omoed v'lo tamutu chukat olam l'dorotechem. Do not drink any wine or beer, etc. when you come to Olmo'ed. 
prohibited. You must differentiate between holy and profane. And not just that Kohenim must be sober, and not just that Kohenim must be those who make division and differentiate and are careful. But, And to teach to B'nai Israel all of the laws. Kohanim have a particular attachment to differentiation, to sober distinction, to teaching, to hora'ah. And what Sforno in using the word hora'ah to talk about the halakhic discourse that follows between Moshe on the one and Elazar Tamar and on the other hand, tells us is that the story of the conflict about what should be done with the chatat is a masa matan balacha. It's the story of Kohanim who understand perfectly their role. That despite the tragedy that happened to them, despite the existential psychological state they're in, they are not overwhelmed. And they're able to make subtle distinctions. They're able to paskin halacha, to know what the proper hilchot kadashim are. The story of the conversation is a manifestation of Aharon knowing his proper role as a Murah Halacha, as a Shomer Halacha, one who must be attacked to the laws of Ilchot Kadashim per se, as he was commanded in the previous segment of the Torah. Now, how does this all connect back up to the death of Nadav Avihu? Now, here we must go back one more time to the text, to another comment of Sforno. Back to the text. The Torah tells us one very important thing about um, the sin of Nadav Avihu. Parak Yud Pasuk Aleph. That which was not commanded. After, throughout Perak Tet, through the bringing of all the carbonot that are meant to bring the Shekhinah into the Mikdash, we have over and over and over, Kasher Tziva Hashem et Moshe, Kasher Tziva Moshe, it appears six or seven times throughout Perak Tet. Suddenly here in Counterpoint, what's the whole point of um, it was uncommanded. And Sforno comments uh, on the sin. They thought, They thought, just like after the bringing of the daily Korban Tamid in the Mikdash, um, then the Divine Presence would dwell in the Mikdash. Ka'amur, after the Korban Tamid, Ketoret is brought. And the whole idea of Ketoret, and I've discussed this in the past, is that the cloud generated by Ketoret, the smoke generated by Ketoret, of course, symbolizes the Anan. It symbolizes the cloud, the divine presence of God. God comes, Kaviachol, so to speak, to consume the Korban that's brought on a daily basis, and then the cloud is created by man to attenuate, or to contain, or to reflect, or to continue the presence of the divine in the Mikdash. And the cloud is a symbolism and a continuation of that divine presence begun by the Karbanot. And Sferno says that Nadavaviyu wanted to do the exact same thing. God came to, so to speak, consume the carbonot born in the Yom HaShmini, and other people thought, now is the time to bring Torah, to create a cloud, to attenuate, to contain, to continue that divine presence, and that's exactly why they brought the Torah, according to Sforno. And Sforno continues on uh, to say that, but the problem was, it was Asher Lotziva Otam. It was not what they were commanded. Even if it was an appropriate action to do and the right thing to do, they've been commanded. They did the wrong thing because it wasn't commanded. It wasn't the proper the way to bring the divine presence into the Mikdash. And therefore they were punished. Therefore they were consumed. They made an error in Halakha. And that was why they died. Now, to put this all together, what I would like to, and tie this up to the Chet Egel and put this, uh, everything into perspective, I would like to suggest 
the following reading of Perak Tet, Perak Yud, based upon the structure of the Perak and based upon the comments of Sforno. The story of Perak Tut and Perak Yud is about the question of how does Shechina come into the Mikdash, or how does Shechina, how does Divine Presence come into um, the midst of Am Yisrael? And the answer is, is that it's through the actions of the Kohanim fulfilling their proper and proscribed role through proper adherence to Hilchot Kadashim, through the proper attachment to Hilchot Kadashim, to the laws of holiness, through the proper teaching uh, and engagement and application of the laws of Kadashim. That's how the parak begins. It begins with bringing of the Karbanot. Uh, we then move to there, to the story of the Chetim Nodavaya, which undermines that, which is the exact opposite. Um, they do the right thing, but it's not commanded. It's the wrong thing because it's not proper adherence to the law. And God's presence cannot really be in the right way amongst B'nai Israel unless it is commanded, unless it is according to the proposal of Bechot Kadashim. What follows afterwards? What follows afterwards is the reenactment or the recommand in the short code of conduct given to Aaron and his sons um, about keeping laws of Kadashim and teaching them, um, making sober differentiation and knowing what the role of the Kohen is all about. And finally, what follows after that is the story that brings it all together, the dialogue between Moshe on the one hand and Aaron and Elazar on the other hand, the argument about the Chatat, where we see Kohanim here who are able to properly adhere to the laws of Kadashim. We know that the halacha is the halacha, how to paskin, how to live. They are the ones who understand the role of Kohanim, who are not Nadav Avihu, who are in contrast to Nadav Avihu, who are capable and able to bring the divine presence into uh, the Machaneh, into the camp of Am Yisrael, through proper attachment to the laws of Kadashim. I think this is the reading of the structure of the parak. Now, how does this all connect up to the Chet Ha'egel? Very, very briefly, I think we may do this outside without referring to the text. One of the strange things about the Chet Ha'egel is the role of Aharon in the Chet Ha'egel. Um, after all, when B'nai Yisrael come to Aharon and they say, make us an Elohim, make us a God, maybe they intend Avodah Zarah, maybe they intend idol worship, or maybe they intend to turn away from the Shekhinah completely um, and to go after something else. But Aaron can possibly not intend that. Aaron certainly remains loyal. He is not Obeyed of Zarah. But Aaron says, bring me your gold. And Aaron says, throw it in the fire. And Aaron fashions the eagle. And Aaron says, Chag Lashem Machar. Um, and he builds him his bath in front of the eagle. What is going on? Well, the mystery, as understood uh, by Ramban and Ibn Ezra, is that Aaron gives a little bit of ground to B'nai Yisrael. Aaron says, well, maybe we can bring the Shekhinah into the Machaneh in a slightly unorthodox or different fashion. The Egel is a lot like the Kruvim. Perhaps it can serve as the kind of Kisei. It can serve as the resting place of the Divine Presence. And it's all a kind of mechanism or technology for bringing the Divine Presence amongst Am Yisrael, bringing it down, but of course, in a way, Asher Lotzi Va'utam. In other words... Perhaps the chait of Bnei Yisrael, and certainly the chait of Aaron himself, is the chait of Nadav Avihu later on here in Parshat Shmini in Sefer Vayikra. It is the attempt to bring the Divine Presence into a structure amongst the Machanah of Am Yisrael in a way that is not commanded, in a way that violates the laws of Kadashim, in a way that does not uh, adhere to the strict letter of the law. That exactly is the chait of Aaron. If so... I think we can come back and understand everything that's going on in Parak Ted and Parak Yod and how this is on some level a kapara for Aharon or for the actions of the Chet Egel. It is not so much the karbanot that Aaron brings 
in Paraktet, the Egel that is the Kapra. And certainly, I would like to say, it's certainly not the death of his sons that is the Kapra, but it is the Tikkun, the fixing of his previous behavior. It is his own internalized understanding that only through proper adherence to the laws of Kadashim, to the letter of the laws, to the Tzivu of Hashem, can the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, be brought into the Machinah, be brought into the camp. That is the Tikkun. That is the Kapra, the attachment to the letter of the law vis-a-vis Mishkan and Karbanot. That's what brings the Divine Presence this is the Kapra for Chet Ego here in these Prakim, and this is kind of the discourse of Parak Tet and Parak Yud of Sefer Vayikra. Okay.